Is that any better? Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, there was a there was a song long ago that I heard uh, by a pastor named Steve Hurt, and um, and he played it on the piano. That's the only way I know it. So it's it's going to have to be played by me on the piano, which is not my typical instrument. But if y'all bear with me, uh, I hope that you enjoy it. <laughs> You've been my friend for so long You were right when I was wrong I can't repay all the love you've given me You were my friend when no one cared I was alone, but you were there Lord, you're the best thing that ever happened Lord, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. We'll borrow treasures and borrow dreams, all life's joy you've given me. When trouble comes, you're always there to make me smile. So come what may, thy will be done. I love you, Jesus. Precious Son, Lord, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. And I owe it all to you, Lord. All I have is yours, Lord. Take my life, make it what you'd have it be. And I'm your child, and you're my father. The potter, Lord, you're the best thing that ever happened to me, and I owe it all to you, Lord. All I have is yours, Lord. Take my life, make it what you'd have it be. For I'm your child, and you're my father. that brother Derek let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of John book of John chapter 18 
John 18, verse 33, when you find that spot, if you will, stand with me out of the reverence uh, of the reading of God's Word. Thanks. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 33, and just for context, uh, just for a moment, and I'm confident that you all understand context here. Uh, this is during the trial period of Christ just before the crucifixion. So just this day, uh, the Lord is going to be crucified. Look at verse 33. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto them, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate said unto him, What is truth? I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning about that question, What is truth? Once again, we are considering a, a Bible character. Uh, we uh, see this passage and we think of Pilate. And once again, I, I want you to understand that uh, this sermon's not about Pilate. It's not about Pilate's character. It's not about you being like him or not being like him. You emulating him or not emulating him it has nothing to do with Pilate. Outside of the question that Pilate asked the question. We're not uh, suggesting any redeemable quality or irredeemable quality in Pilate. We're simply looking at the question. What is truth? I would ask for you to pray with me now. And ask the Lord to illuminate for you. This passage. This question. And the answer to it. Would you pray with me? Father we thank you for this wonderful opportunity we have to be together Lord. To come together to worship together. To open an inerrant, infallible word of God that is eternally settled to know, Lord, we can depend upon it and trust in it. Father, I pray that as we look through these passages this morning and as we consider this question, Lord, that you would provide for us the illumination of your blessed Holy Spirit. Lord, that as we study, he would reveal, he would guide, he would lead. Father, that we would uh, both see and hear, and then follow, Father, that we would obey. Lord, I pray that uh, you would just work in a special way this morning. Help us, Father, just for a few minutes to quiet the world and to quiet the outside and to find ourselves alert at the feet of Jesus, seeking to be taught. Lord, I pray you'd do a special work in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 
when we think about this moment with Pilate, there is a question as to his motivation and intention behind the question, what is truth? Uh, I, I would challenge you to consider that. Again, it's not the heart of the sermon, but I would like for you for just a moment as we work through this introduction to put yourself in the shoes of Pilate and understand the circumstances that he had around him. He was standing face to face with the one who created all things. All things were created for him and by him and in him consist. He was faced with the literal truth, the son of God. He knows likely nothing of, of Christ's teachings. He probably knows such a minuscule amount of, of the teachings of Judaism because they just would not have concerned him. He's got this riot outside that wants this man dead. He has this man here who is meek. He's humble. He won't defend himself. He makes claims that are very difficult for a born-again person to comprehend, much less someone who has no inference from the Holy Spirit. And here is Pilate standing in this place, and, and he asks this question, what is truth? And so we would think, is he asking that, is that sarcasm? Is it, a, is it an off-the-cuff, sarcastic remark back to this, this individual of what is truth? Or... Is it frustration? Because he wasn't particularly concerned with the truth. What he wanted was for the, the immediate circumstance to be over. He didn't want this man on the cross. He didn't want him on the whipping post. He didn't want him in his hall. He didn't want the Jews outside rioting. He did not want a problem because that problem would come home to roost and he knew it. Maybe it was frustration. Was it cynicism? Who knows? Maybe, maybe it was a, a, a literal plea for help in just a moment, in just a brief moment where the Holy Spirit shook his heart and out of his mouth came the question, what is truth? But he was so caught up in that moment that he couldn't stay long enough to hear what truth really was. I would submit to you, that we all are facing a life very much like that. Where there are times where we may address something that should be truth from sarcasm. We may address it from cynicism. We may address it out of frustration. Or we may literally ask what is truth. But we have to wait. We have to find ourselves waiting to hear the answer. Here we have Pilate. I, I don't want to defend Pilate. I told you I'm not offering any redeemable quality. Uh, we should all understand Pilate crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. He is culpable. He is responsible. He's directly related to that action. And he did so for pro probably the most... Uh, the, the, the worst reason that you could do it, he did it for political expediency. Here, uh, Pilate is again faced with these Jews who he knows are common to incite 
uh, riot. They're common to cause problems. They, it is not uh, unlike them to, to bring down trouble from on high. He's got them. He has this guy in front of him who, who is basically a rover. And in a moment, Pilate is thinking, I don't really want to do this, but if this person who nobody cares about can be sacrificed to stop that, it's expedient. That's the decision he makes. It's horrible. Uh, it's, it's, it's even worse because he made that decision against the wishes of his wife. His wife said, look, don't, don't touch that man. I don't know why, but don't touch him. I've dreamed about him. Don't, l listen, just don't tangle with that. There's something that you need to stay away from. He did so against not only the wishes of his wife, but against his own desires, his own will, and his own sense of reason. Because on multiple occasions, if you'll read a, a harmony of the Gospels, he would say, I, there's, nothing, there's no fault. He's guiltless. He's not worthy of death. How about this? How about I just release him? Hey, why don't, why don't we just turn him loose? How about I just give him back to you? He, he would do anything, but in the end, he goes against even his own wishes. And the worst possible, or the worst problem is that he did so to his own demise. I would direct you to remember just a few pages before this, you'll read of, of what we call the Last Supper. Wherein the Lord Jesus Christ was telling the disciples that he was going to be betrayed. He was telling them that he was going to be crucified. And he, he made a statement that, that he was going the way it should be. But woe to the man who had betrayed him. He said that so that Judas would hear, look, uh, this is part of the plan. It's coming to pass. This is, it's time. But you are responsible for your actions. And here we have Pilate in a very similar situation. I want you to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be crucified because it was determined before the foundation of time that he would be crucified. It was determined before the foundation of time that the sinless, spotless Lamb of God would die for the sins of the world. He was going to be crucified. But here in this moment, Pilate has found himself inserted into history and he's culpable for his, for his he's responsible. For his actions. To his own demise. However, as I stated at the beginning, I'm not really interested in Pilate. I think there's something there. <laughs> You're responsible for the decisions you make. But that's, that's not the interest this morning. So, as I thought about this question, what is truth? Can I be honest with you for a moment? I didn't tell the earlier group this. This is something special for you. Uh, two, three times over the last 12 days, I thought about not preaching this. Because the question, what is truth, is, is a pit. It's a snare. As I thought about what is truth, I thought uh, to the conclusion that this, it has at least, at least, a practical answer, a theoretical answer, and an actionable or an applicable answer. At least we could answer it three ways. From a practical perspective, we could, from a practical answer, we could just go to a, a dictionary and pull a definition of truth. Somebody could say, what is truth? We could say, well, practically speaking. 
And, and we could give, you know, a body of real things, events or facts or the state of being, the case, the fact, or, or uh, we, we, we could talk about transcendent spiritual things. There's these practical answers, a, a body of true statements and propositions, uh, the property of being in accord with fact or reality. We could say, well, that's truth. From a from a, a Christian or a spiritual perspective, we could certainly, from a practical answer, say, well, God is true. And not only is God truth, the truth is God. We could even say that He is the epitome of truth, as is as in that God is the standard of reality. The epitome of truth is God. We could say that that not only that, he's the encapsulation of truth in the word of God. Because every bit of this book is true. And we say he's encapsulated truth for us so that we can literally hold truth in our hands. We could say God is the embodiment of truth in the Lord Jesus Christ as he came and dwelt among us. That's a very practical answer. From a practical perspective, we could say to Pilate, well, Pilate, the truth, uh, this is what the truth is. God is truth. God's plan is truth. And the God-man is truth. There's truth. From a practical perspective. Very easily, we could do that. And then we could look at this idea of a theoretical answer. I'm not, I'm not real, uh, real big on theoretical answers because uh, basically... Uh, when you talk about a theoretical answer, it leaves definition open to interpretation. However, uh, the Lord showed me this week that there are three roots uh, upon which ideas and perspectives of the truth are based. And, and I'm not saying there's only three, but these three exist. One of them is science. One of them is society. And the other one is sentiment. And I want you to know that they're all very, very equally dangerous. There, there are those who would consider science to be the revelation and measure of truth. It, they, would, they, would, they would take science first and then compare down to the scriptures. And you know the problem with that is that Science is not settled. It's ever evolving. That's the nature of science. And so if we determine the truth based on the root of science, we are admitting up front that truth is arbitrary and not absolute. Whereas the word of God specifically states it's settled. It's complete. It's eternal. And so the proper view would be to elevate the word of God. And if you are a science based individual compare science to the word of God, predetermining the fact that the word of God is truth. And so if science doesn't support the word of God, it's foul. If any science that is, is uh, accomplished without being viewed through a Christian world view is going to be in the very least misleading. Any science that attempts or approaches uh, to disprove a biblical account is deception. And deception is Satan's oldest trick. And I'll say a little bit more about a Christian worldview in a moment because I think that that is misunderstood. 
Secondly, we, we can say science and we say, okay, well, science is a problem if, if we're not looking through a biblical Christian worldview. Well, then we think about society. There are those, and probably, probably in our congregation, and there are those that consider society to be the best barometer of truth. Their, their thought is, they've determined that if society as a whole accepts something as true or acceptable, then it must be. And so they're always seeking to fit in or be approved by society. And if society draws a stark contrast to the scriptures, the scriptures in their view, again, is wrong or misinterpreted or is spiritual. And it's got to be reinterpreted in order to agree with society. However, uh, when we start thinking about that Christian worldview, so this is a, a definition problem, and I don't exactly know, I don't know exactly how it happened. I'm sure that I could come up with an answer for that, but it, it, I don't know that it matters, just understanding that it exists. The word Christian has been redefined. So, uh, Christian in its proper, proper definition, means little Christ, follower of Christ, disciple of Christ, right? Yeah. That's what that means. Yeah. And so a Christian should be, should resemble a Christ. He ought to be Christ-like. And uh, a, there's, there's a foregone conclusion that if you are a Christian, you came to that knowledge by the Word of God, so you have accepted the validity of the word of God, and you can't get some without taking all. That's what Christian should mean. What Christian has become uh, to mean is moral, well-dressed, appropriate, uh, soft-spoken, affable, likable, agreeable. And if you approach a circumstance that is opposing the scripture, and you reject the fallacy stating that the Bible is the truth, they will cease calling you a Christian and they will accuse you of not being a Christian because you're being disagreeable, hateful, and they'll hang all kinds of titles on you. So they've redefined Christian. So when I say a Christian worldview, I'm not looking at the Bible or at science or at society or at sentiment, when we get there in a moment, I'm not looking at them through the worldview of, I want to be agreeable. I'm looking at them through the worldview of holding the Bible at a hierarchical position and realizing that everything has to match up with it. And when it doesn't, that thing needs to be redirected, not the word of God. And so we have this, these people that would, uh, again, society is not a good judge of truth if society is not directed from a Christian worldview. You can't depend on science unless, of course, it's through a Christian worldview. And there's a lot of science out there that is. Yes. And you know what it does? It supports the Bible. That's right. Proves it, in fact. 
And so uh, we have science, we have society. And then this third one, and, and I want to tell you something. If there are some in the congregation guilty of basing truth on science, and if there are some in the congregation guilty of basing truth on society, there are a lot in the congregation guilty of basing truth on sentiment. So what is a sentiment or a sentimental view of truth? It's very prevalent, in my opinion, especially in the South, which I know a little bit about. I don't know much about the North. I'm, I'm honest about that, nor the West. I'm very familiar with the South. I am one. And so a sentimental view of the truth is a view of the truth that's based upon the way you were raised and what you were told by those who raised you. Right, wrong, or indifferent. And that becomes truth to you. That becomes what you base truth on is what these two, three generations before said. Or maybe one, if you're, you know, if you're really close to that one. Let me give you a really good example. I think uh, a premium example of a sentimental, uh, a truth based on a sentimental view instead of a scriptural view. And uh, it's this, and it happens all the time. Uh, the view of interracial marriage as being anti-biblical. That is a lie. It's an absolute lie. It's not in there. This is what happens. For, for years, it was taught. Uh, in, in fact, uh, probably uh, 20, up to 20 years ago, maybe, uh, it was still actively taught, and I still actively agreed with it. It's not in the scriptures. This is the problem. You can go right now, if you go in this general vicinity, just go out on the street and approach somebody that's 55, 50 and up. And, brother, you tell me if I'm wrong. Whether they're white or black, they will tell you that interracial marriage is against the scriptures. If they were raised in a biblical, not a Baptist or a biblically centric church. Because that's what's been taught for the last hundred years. Yeah. And there's no truth in it. And, and you hear people that, well, it's, just, it's against the scriptures. No, it's not against the scriptures. That is a sentimental truth. Okay, and this is the thing. It's probably one of the least worrisome sentimental truths as if it affects anybody there are other sentimental truths that are going to send people to hell where they have adopted a truth that they were taught by their their mother or their grandmother or their granddaddy or the pastor they had when they were growing up and they were taught these truths and so they assumed they were biblical truths and they've clung to them Rather than studying the word of God themselves and determining what is truth. Another one that's less, less divisive but quite comical, and I'm sure you've all heard it. Uh, uh, cleanliness. It's not in the Bible. I'm sorry. Uh, you can stink and still be a Christian. You can, be, you can be dirty and still be a Christian. It's not in the Bible, but we've heard that all of our life. We've heard these things, and they're... My mind is too small to lay them all out there, but this is, this is what I'm trying to share with you. If you get in the Word of God, when you hear them, you'll recognize them. If you're not in the Word of God, when you hear them, you agree with them. 
And so we have this, this societal view of truth, this sentimental view of truth. And, and the fact is a sentimental view of truth without a Christian worldview, which is a hierarchical Bible worldview, is just as wrong, just as deceptive as any of these other non-truths. So I thought about this this week. I think, okay, I could do a practical definition. I could do a theoretical definition. I didn't say I could do them well. I'm just saying that it was two of my choices. And so I began thinking, okay, I'm sure there are lost folk that need to know that, that God is truth and that the Bible is truth and that science or society or sentiment can send you directly to hell if you, if you don't have some clarity of the truth to guide you through their, their own confusions. But you know what bothers me more than that is that I'm just as sure that there are believers that don't know the truth. See, they, they've got that, they, they've accepted Christ as their Savior. They can quote the gospel to you. It may be a colloquial gospel, but they can quote it to you. That they, they are born again, they, they, but they're not involved in the Word of God, actively learning the Word of God. They'll listen to whoever comes on the radio or the TV that says they're Christian, they'll listen to them and they'll pick up little nuggets here and there that, that probably shine like truth, but they may not be based on the truth. They'll listen to the pastor and look, I love you. I appreciate you. I'm humbled that you listen to me, but you better not be counting on me to get you to glory. You better be uh, counting on the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I were you, uh, just a recommendation, I would invest myself in the study of the word of God. But people are just going along with these truths. So at any rate, I determined that rather than practical or theoretical, I would do a descriptive definition of the truth. Because I believe it's actionable. I believe it is something you can apply. And it's going to be pretty quick. I want you to look. I'll give it to you in your handout. But if you want to turn. John chapter 14. I'll give you three statements about the truth. Three descriptive statements about the truth. The first is that the truth is absolute. It is not arbitrary. And because it's absolute. It comforts me. I'm thankful that I can depend upon it. In John chapter 14, the Lord Jesus speaking again, just prior to uh, his crucifixion, he is talking to his disciples. He's preparing them for the fact that he's going to go away. He's promising them the comforter, but he's telling them he's going to go away. And he, you remember the passage, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And if it were not so, I would have told you. If I go to prepare a place, I'll come again so that you can go with me. Then one of the disciples says, Lord, we don't know the way. You remember that? And in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, you know this scripture. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, you should have known my Father also. And henceforth you know him and you have seen him. So uh, you say, well, okay, I like that. But tell me why that is absolute and not arbitrary. You see that little word, the? <laughs> it's a definite article. 
I am the truth. You can literally say the one and only truth. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. So in this passage, uh, the Lord is saying there is only one way and that's me. There's only one path to life. If you seek eternal life, it comes through me. And there is only one truth that is an absolute truth. And Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. It's absolute. Well, then you say, okay, well, tell me, tell me how that helps me. Well, if we go back to John chapter 1, I don't, I'm not telling you to go there. If you go back to John chapter 1, you find out that in the beginning God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh. Who is that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the truth. Then in Hebrews chapter 1, we find out that in all these past, God spoke through prophets and through signs. But in these last days, what? He's spoken to us through His Son. So Jesus is the Word. He's the truth. He's the Word. He is the way God is speaking. And so let me give you just a a really direct statement. The only way you're going to know the truth is by reading the Word of God. That's it. It never ceases to amaze me. It it seemingly happens often these days. That I'll be talking to somebody who is a believer. Claims to be born again. And they will share with me an argument against the Bible that was presented by a non-believer. As if a non-believer who is not born again, not indwelt by the Spirit of God can in no way read, comprehend, and interpret the Word of God, has an authoritative opinion about the eternal, inerrant, infallible Word of God. That would be like me saying, uh, Brother Larry, I heard you were colorblind. Is that true? Brother Larry's saying, yes. Is it true? It's true. Brother Larry's, well, Brother Larry, I just bought a house, and I need to paint it inside and out. Would you come help me pick out my paint colors? You wouldn't like it. I wouldn't like it. There's no reason to do that. So why would I go to a non-believer? And say, hey, you, you you're bound for hell because you're not born again. Would you do me a favor and tell me your opinion of the precious word of God? Why would I do that? Truth is absolute. It It is not arbitrary. And if we will look to the believers, those who are born again and dwelt by the word of God, we can understand the truth from a proper perspective. And I'm thankful that, grateful as a believer that I can go through this life. I, I know the truth. I know it. I don't know what the government's, I don't know what any of that's going to happen. I don't care. God is sovereign. And I'm born again. When it's over, I'll stand face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you can say that today. Look, look with me next at John chapter 17. Again, I put it in your outline there if you don't want to turn, but they're close. This is another passage you're very familiar with. We just used it a couple of weeks ago. John chapter 17 is the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to hear this statement. The truth is authoritative. It is not ambiguous. And it cleanses me. 
It cleanses me. In John chapter 17, the Lord Jesus Christ is preparing to go to the cross. He's praying to the Father in heaven. And he's praying for those believers who would remain those in the world, but not of the world. Who is that? That's me and you. And in that prayer, he's, made, he's praying some promises and praying for the comforter and praying for some protection. And in that prayer, in John 17, 17, uh, you've read this. We just read a couple weeks ago. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is the truth. I, I, I don't want to point it out. I don't want to be uh, too harsh, but there's some more of those definite articles in that statement. Your word is the truth. Sanctify them, cleanse them through the truth. That passage is also very comforting to me. It is, it is, it is positive, it's very familiar, but we can recognize that if we see and accept the admonition that the believer needs nothing to replace the scriptures, we also recognize that the goal of the scripture is to cleanse. Now listen, the goal of the scripture is to cleanse. That signals that it has the authority to cleanse and the ability to cleanse if the approach is to be cleansed. So if you, if you get in the shower at home filthy, I'm talking about some that don't rinse off. You got to use soap. You, I like it, man. I'm good with it. Now listen, I worked on cars for years. You stand under hot water all you want to. Grease don't rinse off. But if you get in the shower and your deal to get in the shower is not to get in and get wet, but to get in and get clean, there's an activity that must take place in the shower. If you were a born-again believer and your idea is to read the Word of God so you can check it off some list, uh, you're just getting wet. You need to approach it with the desire to be cleansed because it has the authority and the ability to do so. If we would read the Word of God, not seeking to amend it, but seeking to agree with it and adjust to conform to it, it cleanses. What is truth? The truth is absolute and it com comforts me. The truth is authoritative. It cleanses me. And lastly, John chapter 8. I included it in your passage in your outline. But if you want to turn there, John chapter 8. The truth is aiding and abetting. It frees me. It unchains me. John chapter 8, the Lord Jesus Christ teaching as he did often. Teaching to a group of religious right-wingers, if you will. And there's those Pharisees. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, listen, uh, the truth will set you free. And the first thing they said was, we're not in bondage. We've never been in bondage. We're Abraham's seed. Can I tell you a little secret, interestingly enough? They were, that moment, actively in political bondage. That moment, they were in bondage. For them to say, we are not in bondage, was disingenuous. They were in bondage. However, that's not what the Lord was speaking about. The Lord was talking about their sin life. And so he says to them, listen, whoever commits sin is in bondage to the sin. You are in bondage. But if you come to the Son, He can set you free. And when the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Yes, 
So we see this idea that truth is aiding and abetting. It releases, it unchains me. Folks love to talk about liberty, freedom. That's, that, that, you, you start talking to somebody about Christian living and Christian walk. One of the first things they'll say is they'll start talking about liberty and freedom. And if you tell them, man, listen to me. You're in bondage. They'll do just like the Pharisees. I'm not in bondage. I've never been in bondage. I've been free all my life. The, the idea behind freedom and liberty, when we receive Christ, is freedom from bondage. It's freedom from something, not freedom to something. All these folks walking around talking about, I'm free to do this. I'm free to do that. What are you free from? Because I'm free from the penalty and the power of sin in my life. I'm free from the bondage of sin. We, we would see this argument and, and Christ would say very clearly, look, whoever is committing sin, actively living in sin, you are in bondage to that sin. I was thinking about this on the way home yesterday, me and the guys talking a little bit. And I was thinking about uh, in my early 30s when the Lord began dealing with me. And, and, uh, and I was born again. See, I, I love talking to these folks talking about I'm saved and I'm free, yeah. I saved one time and I wasn't free. I was born again, but I was living like a heathen, living in the world. The Lord started dealing with me. And at that moment, I was a two-pack-a-day smoker. I was a casual drinker. And by casual, I mean two or three days a week. I would have defended it. We would, we would do things and go places we should have never been, should have never went. I would defend it. You, you know, when the Lord began dealing with me, and, and I, look, I'm not naming sins this morning. It's not about that. This is about freedom. When the Lord co convicted me about drinking, the, the day that I stopped, it was a one-time decision. All I had to do is say, you know what? I think I'm just going to pour all that out. And I, you know what? I'm not going to buy any more of it. You know, I've never had anybody ridicule me over that. I don't have to get up every day and think to myself, hmm, am I going to drink a beer today? I don't think about that. I made that decision one time. And you know what? I was free from it. It was over. The same with the cigarettes. Put them down. And look, I was a tobacco fiend. Love tobacco. Put it down. I made that decision one time. Nobody's ever ridiculed me over it. Nobody, there's never a Marlboro standing on the corner saying, man, don't you miss me? It doesn't happen. I made that decision one time and I made it not for my own self-righteousness. I made it because the Lord convicted me of it and I believed it was true in his word. And I made it one time and we talked to people and they say, well, you know, I'm born again, but I can do this and I can do that and I can do that. You can, but you don't have to just make a decision. We have this, this aiding and abetting activity. Christ would say to them, you're in bondage. They said, we're not in bondage. And then he would define uh, sin in the scriptures. And we'll talk to folks today and sins that are literally named in the scriptures. And they'll say, no, I'm not in bondage. Why would they do that? Is that logical speak? Does it make sense? Well, let me tell you something. I thought about it all week. If they're in bondage, it's logical. If they're in bondage, it makes sense. Because this is the truth about bondage. Bondage prevents 
them from reading the Bible and seeing the truth as it relates to that behavior. Sin will separate you from the Bible. Or the Bible will separate you from sin, right? So bondage prevents that ability to read and, and to see. Bondage uh, comes with blindness. They're in the dark. There's, there's quite the conversation that would say they're in the dark because they're ashamed of the bondage they're in, so they run to the dark. And then when they're in the dark, they say, I'm not in bondage. Uh, no, there's no bondage here, but it comes with blindness. Bondage comes with deafness. It creates an, an impossibility for them to even hear the truth. Bondage comes uh, with, with uh, uh, death. That's the result of it. It's blindness, it's deafness, and it results in death. This is the pity. And, and listen, I mean it's a pity. Is that we have this person. And often it's somebody that we love. Sometimes it's just somebody we see and we, we think, man, that's pitiful. I want to help that person. But a lot of times it's somebody you love. It's somebody that means the world to you. They're, they're your heart. And there they are. In chains. Blind. Death. And dying. Vehemently arguing that they're free. And that we're trying to take them away from their freedoms. I'm thankful this morning. That I've been set free. I'm free from those chains of bondage. I can see. I can hear. When I read the word of God, it's as real to me as it's more real than anything else. It's alive. It's sharp. It's powerful. It is quickening. I can see. I can hear. I'm not alone. God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, has set me free. And I want to ask you this morning, has he done that for you? Would you stand with me this morning with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? I, I don't know. I don't know your need today. I, I, I suppose you could ask the question, what is truth? Can, can I tell you this morning, the truth if you're born again and walking right with God, the truth ought to be comforting, cleansing, and chain-breaking in your life. It ought to empower you. But if the truth doesn't do that for you, there's a need. So maybe this morning you just want to come down and thank the Lord that you're free. Thank the Lord for your freedoms and for your liberties in Christ. Maybe this morning you want to come down and appeal to him to set you free. He'll accept praise and he'll give grace. Would you come this morning? Father, I pray you'd bless this time of invitation. Help us, Lord, as we seek to walk right in Jesus' name. Amen.
Lord. Amen. Well, would